for March 5th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 192. It could be Kabuki. Welcome to the Overthinking and Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From a, uh, from a Los Angeles fatigued by the movie award season, I'm your host, Matthew Rather. Uh, we'd never want to see another movie until uh, next December when all the prestige movies come out. So we won't talk about movies uh, today. We'll talk about television shows, because they're really different these days. Um, but uh, for those of you who may have seen the Lorix, this question of the week is for you. Uh, panel. Name yes. One thing you did this week that did more for the environment than watching the Lorax. <laughs> Pete Fenzel, you are first up. All right, excellent. So when I think about this question, uh, I think about it in a couple ways. So the big thing that I did today, I actually considered going to see the Lorax for the listeners because I feel like they deserved criticism of America's number one movie. But I was crushed by despair at the prospect of sitting in a theater by myself surrounded by children or empty, (laughs) either way. (laughs) Uh, Even partially surrounded by children would have creeped me out uh, and seeing Lorax. So instead, I spent the whole day cleaning and doing errands. Now... If you consider the environment, right, like the environment as, as a sort of grand sense of something, uh, what you're really talking about, it, people talk about this, this sort of like, you know, Gaia spirit that's independent of people. Uh, they talk about this, the other species on the planet to which like people have a certain, you know, ad- Adamic responsibility. Like we have to protect the species that exist. Like the extinction of other species is bad. We, there's some sort of, uh, you know, ideal number of the kinds of other kinds of animals that ought to be on the planet. We should cultivate biomes, all that other stuff. The, I'm not saying these things are, are bad, but it's, it's all part and parcel of this idea of the earth as, a, as people consider and imagine it. Right, the idea that if we were to just totally destroy what we consider the environment, life and the earth would continue, but we would all die. Right, so to an extent, the environment is our environment, uh, and at least at this point, now that we've shown our ability to screw it up so badly, so to a degree, like it is is something like totally organizing and cleaning everything in your life, something that you're doing for an environment. Uh, in that sense, I think that that doesn't work in terms of the cultural and politics of, the, of environmentalism. So I will say that you know, when I went to go buy some new running shoes, which of course were made through polymers and fossil fuels, which is terrible and all that, I did ride my bicycle. So I'm going to say that it was warm enough outside that I could ride my bicycle. Uh, and I also have had my heat off all weekend, which has been nice, too, because it's been relatively mild. So that is what I'm going to say, along with my I- notes and ideas about the relationship between people and the world around us. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Pete. Mark Lee, what did you do for Mother Earth this weekend? Well, just quickly to piggyback on Pete's comment about riding his bike uh, around – um, well, I was, you know, I would say that uh, for most people in America, they would drive to see a movie. Um, so it, I would be tempting to say that, that, you know, not driving to go see a movie uh, would be what I did for the environment. Except I live in New York City, and I also live within walking distance of a movie theater. Um, so even if I didn't walk to a movie, I would have taken public transportation, which, um, you know, it's the trains are going to run whether I'm riding it or not. So that wouldn't really have any environmental impact. So I'm going to have to just really go with the really lowest hanging fruit and say that uh, what I did for the environment this weekend was not replace my CFL bulbs with incandescent bulbs. And I also did not chop down a tree and I also did not start a tire fire. (laughs) All these things were possible for me to do, but I didn't do them. And that's what I did for the environment. You see where I'm going with this? Yes. Yes, you do. (laughs) Wait, hold on. Mark, do I see where you're going? Are you threatening us? (laughs) I'm not, not. Is this this a veiled threat? You know, I didn't light a tire fire, but these things get lit all the time. You know what I'm saying? It's a real tragedy. I'm saying that, you know, there are a lot of tires out there in the world and they are are able to be lit on fire. That's all I'm saying. No, it's a very uh, galvanized rub is a pretty uh, flammable substance. It'd be a real pity if it got lit on fire. I know. Hey, Dave, you mean it's a uh, flammable substance, or are you saying it's a very inflammable substance? Are you, are you mocking me? Are you? Am I? Is my diction somehow comedic to you? No, is that what I, I, no, I, <laughs> Mr. Pesci. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's a, Mr. Pesci. You know, had he had he reached puberty? Um, yeah, sorry, Mark. Go on. <laughs> No, that's it. I, I'm also now just lamenting the loss of our organized crime audience for. 
It's an important demo we're trying to establish. We are crossing sections off the map. Oh, reference. Callback. Deep cut. (laughs) Dave Schechner, what did you do for the uh, deep in in your lab of science? What did you do for the... Uh, Ironically enough, you know, I think the bar is set so low for the actual environmental benefits that the Lorax movie will bring that um, I did set a tire fire, and and I still think that was a better contribution to the environment than um, than going to see the movie. It was pretty easy. (laughs) No, you know, I actually, it's it's super easy to set a tire fire. Just go go to my blog. Anyway, um, (laughs) go to my Tumblr. Take to my Tumblr. Check new tire Dave's fire. Tire fire sexy fiend dot foot fetish dot gov. Uh, <laughs> good year for burning dot blogspot dot org. Yeah. Michelin woman dot gov. Um, <laughs> tire tire. Wow. Yeah, tire tire tire. F yeah tire fire dot tumblr dot com. <laughs> we just won back the organized mafia. Uh, uh, well, that's the, that's what they're waiting for. I uh, I did not go to lab this weekend, and in lab I burn a ridiculous number of petroleum products. Uh, yeah, yeah, I go through a lot of plastic waste, most of which cannot by law be recycled. Uh, a lot of it is made either um, uh, 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 like toxic to the touch, or in many cases radioactive. Uh, I burn through a lot of latex gloves purely for lab work, but also because I'm a germaphobe. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re-spin the fact that I was tremendously lazy and didn't do any work this weekend as my caring about Mother Earth. A lot like the way I spin a belated Hallmark card uh, to, into a story about my caring about my actual mother. <laughs> oh, you know what else I did is I poisoned and released into the water supply um, one fish, two fish, a red fish, and a blue fish. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy, enjoy your mercury, greater Boston area. <laughs> Uh, and and it's me. I uh, I walked around the block. All right, on to the. Uh, television <laughs> I didn't drive her. I didn't drive to the mailbox like Steve Martin in L.A. Story. I uh, I, um, you know. <laughs> I think we need to uh, buy some carbon credits for overthinkingit.com to offset some uh, you know whatever <laughs> minuscule amount of uh, you know carbon footprint that our servers are emitting. I think our because yeah. this is pretty pathetic. Our collective responses. Uh, yeah, I guess so. that's harsh. We, um, yeah, I think our, th- our, our, I think our hosting company actually uh, buys carbon offsets for their for their activities. Um, I think they do. Yeah, I'll put uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. You can find out about it if you're interested. So, uh, so okay, on to um, we're we're moving away. We're we're all movie movie fatigued. Uh, we we thought of doing a silent episode in honor of the artist, but uh, but that joke was not funny to begin with. So the <laughs> hey, that was hilarious. Would it also be in like a more square uh, file format? Yeah, like, exactly. The aspect ratio would be different. <laughs> it would be a .wav file. I did there. So so smash. The television show, uh, the, the the like the last best hope of ABC, the you know the NBC, NBC, well, right. <laughs> a- ABC has that whole Modern Family thing going for it. I think those guys are doing all right. But uh, yeah, NBC once once the first place network with a bullet. Uh, now you know I don't know the the uh, you know I don't know the the runt of the litter of the television litter uh has has pinned all their hopes on this show smash which is costing you know many millions of dollars an episode to produce um and the the pilot apparently cost a, a ton of money and and all this uh half of us have seen it which is an excellent ratio for us so we decided to make it the topic of the podcast we we would have done the lorax we have a zero percent ratio on the lorax nobody uh on this podcast uh has seen has seen the lorax and in fact pete can i can i repeat on the podcast something you said in an email earlier today Oh, you, you, you can repeat it as long as it's verbatim. It, it, well, uh. <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have the email in front of me. But Pete oh, said okay. uh, Pete was going to go see the Lorax. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Pete, but he was going to go see the Lorax. But he said every time I thought about going to see the Lorax, I had a, uh, I had a, a, just a, an irresistible urge to do the dishes. Yeah. <laughs> that is, in fact, what happened, yes. Yeah. <laughs> which is, to, to be clear, which is not a euphemism. Like he was talking about the actual dishes. Yeah, the, no, that's correct. <laughs> the, the, ones, the ones in the sink. 
Exactly. <laughs> um, there, there, there's no limit to what mankind can accomplish when they're supposed to be doing something else. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> no more. Yeah, housework only gets done in my apartment when uh, you know I don't know when there's a big uh, big deadline of some of some sort. So uh, we've been watching Smash. Um, Mark, do you yes. think do you think this is going to save uh, NBC? I mean, ba- based on this, are you going to buy some stock in Comcast? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. That being said, I do find it to be an entertaining show, and apparently it is doing well on the ratings. In spite of that, I am not uh, going to you know say that NBC is, NBC is about to take over the world, uh, or at least the broadcasting world. And here's why. Um, and I, I sent this out to the overthinking and writing crew a while back, um, but I want to bring it up here again, uh, which is that NBC, uh, w- between... Uh, Smash, which is a show about making a Broadway musical, um, 30 Rock, which is a show about making a TV show, and Community, which is by and large a show about uh, just the, the sitcom format in general. NBC has this odd fixation with meta shows, um, with, with telling stories that are very uh, postmodern and about uh, you know, entertainment properties. And I don't see the rest of America being very interested in this sort of postmodern storytelling. And if this, this is like their their approach, um, you know, maybe someone might be thinking that they're uh, getting at a particular niche, but that niche is not particularly big. I mean, it's, uh, you know, people who read a site like ours and Lord knows that there's not a ton of people. So NBC, I'm not quite sure what you're doing. I'm enjoying it. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I hope you please keep doing it. But um, I'm not quite sure how big of an audience there is for this sort of thing. Yeah. Was that is, NBC also ran Studio 60 back in the day, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, well, yeah, Pete, it sounds like you've got ideas on this. Oh, how could you tell? Uh, I, did I, you could hear the sound of my breath or something like that, or like the sound of my typing as I was getting ready for it. <laughs> that's, that's Pete's body saying, I need more energy to burn all these neuronal activities that are <laughs> Exactly. So, so, this is actually, I think, an interesting question with regards to contemporary intellectual life and the creative project, which is once we get to this point where our you know, theoretical baseline understanding of things only operates on like at least one or two degrees removed from what one might consider sort of the the primary axis. Um, it seems as if so, is action along the primary axis sort of ceases to be legitimate. And we have this urge. It's sort of like because we can see the strings, we no longer want to fly the Enterprise. We want to fly the Enterprise with strings attached to it. Does that, does that sort of make sense? It's like I definitely notice that sometimes in, oh. in intellectual pursuits. And I think it's one of the big problems with a lot of kind of highfalutin contemporary literature fi- failing to find an audience. And that like they kind of – and I, maybe I can ask the question about Smash and how Smash succeeds in doing this. H- how much does it – continue to actually be a show while it is also a meta show or is there this idea that because there is no firmament under our signifiers and our structures because there is always this like pit of meta under everything that we can just you know go in a downward spiral into and self navel gaze and self analyze and because we can do that you know how, how successful is it in still managing to sort of you know move forward uh, as an entertainment do you well do you, first first okay so let, let's just establish first like what we're talking about the meta of smash because a lot of the people who are listening is probably haven't seen it yeah. okay so level one is you know uh there is the life of Marilyn monroe and all the movies that she was in um level two is that in, this, in uh, the the people uh, are making the characters in the show are making a musical about the life of Marilyn monroe which obviously heavily heavily references in the movies that she was in Okay. Level okay. three. This is a TV yeah. show about the people that are making this show, this Broadway show. Right. Right. Level right. four is that, um, you know, in the TV show, you have uh, the young upcoming actresses who are aspiring to fame and like potentially bringing each other down, all that sort of stuff. Level four is that outside of the show, the, you know, the actual human beings who are the actresses in the show, you know, there is this like rise to fame uh, story that's already present for Catherine McPhee, who was on American Idol and then presumably, you know, could be there for everybody else who's in the show. So, so for um, you, level four is the metacasting. Uh, yes. Right. Yeah. So you're saying that we need to start making a TV show about their lives and then have someone else film us making it? Uh, yes. There's a MacArthur Genius Grant in there. In there. Outstanding. Yeah. We, we can so, repeat this ad infinitum, I think. So, so I guess hearing all that, so the idea is that this whole thing is based around this idea of a musical of Marilyn Monroe. Are we ever going to get to see the musical? Like, yes. 
Okay. Potentially, if this show does well enough, and the show, the music is being written by uh, Matt. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. What the person who did Hairspray? The, the team behind Hairspray, yeah. The team behind Hairspray. So you know, legit uh, musical theater uh, and established musical theater talent I here. Think, I think the songs for me, like the 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 musical theater songs, are the best part of of Smash. I think they're really, really sort of yeah. well, well written. Yeah. They're clever. They are fantastic. You know? And if this TV show does well enough, then the show will uh, the the show within the show will actually wind up on Broadway. Not the um, not the the show about the making of the show, but the actual Marilyn Monroe bio well, musical. That's, yeah, that's one thing that's been uh, that's been one thing that's uh, been kind of bandied around. But it, God, that would be hard to do, don't you think? That would be a really difficult. What the show about the show or the show within no, the show? No, no, no. To do the Marilyn musical on Broadway. You think so? I mean, yeah, that's obviously what they talk about a lot in the in the mu- in the show Smash. But why exactly? Um, the uh, well, because they well, seem to be doing a great I, job of it by the songs and the writing and the set pieces. No, here's what I'm thinking. Who's going to be in it? You know what I mean? That that is to say, if you don't see these these people like Catherine McPhee and um, uh, Hilty, what's her name, Megan Hilty, if you don't see them in it, uh, it right? Like, it doesn't have the same attraction, right? Well, I mean, is that true, or, or would it basically be the equivalent of like going to see you know Disney on Ice? Or like, obviously, you know that uh, that's not, or, that's not the know. real Mickey Mouse. You know, Mickey Mouse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you of, know, Mickey Mouse has a lot of helpers. Right, right. Exactly. The, the real Mickey Mouse doesn't wear glasses. Um, yeah, you know, like you, you know that you're not going to see an animated cartoon, but you know that just by the fact that it's the real world, it's going to be you know, people ice skating. That it can't be the thing, but but it's still uh, a representation of this thing that you love. So you know, you, you'll want to go see it live if you love it that right. that you know dearly, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, well, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, that is to say that if we really think the, um, the attraction is, is, uh, is the show within it, is the, the, the songs in the show within a show, and I, I don't know, I buy that. Smash. Smash. I, I, <laughs> can we talk about, about one-word one word title? Smash. You know? Mm. Uh, Corey Elena's. <laughs> Actually, that, that's technically the tragedy of Coriolanus, right? Yeah, so, he, yeah sorry. He, he most uh, lamentable, he oldie most lamentable <laughs> and tragical <laughs> history. T r a g i c a l l c k a l l history e i e of uh, Coriolanus. Okay, yeah. all right. The S, the S also looks like an F too. Yeah. <laughs> and in, in the full title, I think he also had the price of his commission in there in the original one. Please to be paid immediately. I'm so very hungry. <laughs> okay, so 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 let's let's. I want to hear a little bit more about this like meta relationship and about this stuff. So the the show that this, of course, the kind of show this reminds me of is stuff like the Ultimate Fighter or like Tough Enough, right? Like from the guy side, or like. Or say yes to the dress, I suppose, but not really. More like more the other two, um, where you're putting on a show, and the show is about the putting on the show, right? It's about like finding a wrestler, or there's going to be a big fight. But it's a reality show, and part of why you're showing the show within the show is because what you really want to see is their own personal interactions. And and so and the question then is sort of do people want to see authenticity or do they want to see kind of like just those kinds of personal soap operas and then the the role of the sort of producer editor or predator as it were to sort of shape that reality. <laughs> so, so the question is is this does it feel like a scripted reality show? And is this sort of fall into that kind of genre of television, or there's enough? It jumps back and forth into musical numbers. Um, I'm just, I'm just having my tr- trouble wrapping my head around this thing. And no, it and does under- not. No, it does not feel like a scripted reality show, though a kind of struggle for power between two, you know, two contestants. The the two women up for the role of M- Marilyn is one of the has been of the free, these first four episodes one of the the big plots and. Um, and I, I think we'll continue the kind of struggle between the, you know, sort of blonde bombshell Broadway pro and the corn-fed corn Iowa girl who is, you know, a novice in the ways of Broadway and musical theater, um, who, who will, I, I mean, who I think is going to come up and get, uh, uh, you, you get the sense that she's going to take Ivy down, right, Mark? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's definitely set up for Catherine McPhee to be the star. Not right. that um, I, uh, the, the blonde uh, bombshell is particularly villainous, but she's not as sympathetic as Catherine McPhee, and right. not much attention wow. is, is paid on her. Set, yeah, she's set up to be, right, exactly. She's set up to yeah. be a, a, sort of a B, you know what I mean? Yeah, one other important thing to just point out is stylistically, 
Um, the show is not meant to evoke reality TV. It's very much set piece drama, uh, you know, high production value, no shaky camera thing going on. Mm-hmm. So does it feel like 30 Rock? Is that kind of what it feels like? But like not as funny, I suppose. No, because it's not. <laughs> b- b- believe it or not, it's not self-conscious. Did I ever did I ever tell the story about this joke that Tina Fey is supposed to have made about Aaron Sorkin? Uh, right, actually, back in the days of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, but right when both shows, because you remember both of those shows premiered in the same season, right? Yeah, and yeah. They were like, uh, in, in, it, it, they were, I mean, there were commercials for 30 Rock that were sort of openly making fun of like how badly they were going to get their rears handed to them by Studio 60, right? Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, little. Yeah, Alan Baldwin being like really excited to meet Aaron Sorkin and and like desperately trying to back out of his contract when he learned that it wasn't that show that he was in. Yeah. Um, he, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's funny. Now in retrospect, that's funny. <laughs> at some sort of, at some sort of like Emmy awards or some sort of like New York writers awards or something like that. Tina Fey is supposed to have, have, uh, said jokingly, uh, I hear Aaron Sorkin is wearing the same dress out on the West coast, only longer and not funny. Uh, uh, uh. I see what you did there. Yeah, uh, she, she's a hell of a writer. Um, no, it's not. It's not like Thirty Rock in that it's not. It's not self conscious. It's very. I mean, it's very earnest. I mean, earnestness is kind of a hallmark of the. Uh, uh, is kind of a hallmark of the series. You know what I mean? Right, Mark. That that is to say, there's no there's no kind of wink. Uh, Except insofar as all musical theater is winking. There's no kind of like, you know, Broadway theater is really, really kind of ridiculous. Um, is it, I mean, is a bizarre form of American performance art that, uh, yeah, I, you know. I don't well, know. it's not winking in, in a self-worth 30 rock style way. It is definitely showing the cattiness and the, and the pettiness of the uh, sort of the entertainment industry writ large. And, uh, you know, the, the, the show, the Broadway world in particular. So, I mean, there is that, uh, that degree of uh, awareness, if you can call it that. Yeah, the idea is that everyone's sleeping with everyone and, like, everyone had an affair with everyone five years ago and, and you know. Uh, yeah, but they could be doing a show about an accounting firm and they would be doing that. Like, yeah. Like Models Inc. did that, right? Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, for example, a paper, a paper company in, in semi-rural Pennsylvania. Right, right, right. And then, it, right. like, you could have, like, the receptionist is maybe going to sleep with one of the guys, but you're not sure. I mean, I'm sure people would eat that up. No, the show, but. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't see it. <laughs> to answer your question from before, Pete, the show doesn't become less of a show just because it happens to be about people putting on. Uh, okay. putting on a show because um, one, one of the centerpieces is uh, you know a new original song by this team every week right that is staged and performed even even if it's kind of notionally uh, within the diegetic world it's a rehearsal um, mm-hmm. it's the like it's like the last rehearsal it's not the rehearsal where they're learning the dance steps it's the, the rehearsal where they know all the dance steps and they're running through it and the cameras are are twirling around uh, and whatnot and this this is supplemented by one or two almost American Idol style karaoke songs uh, every week there's a lot of going to karaoke right in the uh, <laughs> or, you know what I mean there's a lot of people like performing cabaret at piano bars you know just to get some extra extra music uh, into the thing and and those songs are already written they're not from the they're pop songs just, not from the 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 notional show within a show uh, so it wh- one of the ways it it continues to be an entertainment uh, rather than um, uh, rather than just just a contest, is that there at least is a there is at least a notional justification for almost every number in the thing, and some of them are flimsier than others, like the huge production number that comes together at Nick Jonas's uh, you know birthday party. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Although not actually Nick Jonas, yeah, I mean, no, like, Nick you know, Jonas is playing. So it's not a, that uh, sort of you know media uh, aware that it's you know got actually have Nick Jonas. But in he's it. he's playing a fictionalized version of Nick Jonas. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Chick Nonus. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Nonus, your microphone, your guitar. Um, the you know uh, there is at least a flimsy pretext uh, for why all of these numbers are um, believable within the world of the show. 
Okay. We, so mean, that makes within, sense. So- within the diegetic world. Except for one okay. in the pilot. And it really pissed me off because it's um, – I'm, I'm okay pretty much with any set of rules as long as uh, as long as the show sticks to them. You know what I mean? They don't have to be – traditional storytelling rules. You can do whatever you want, but I, I think if you establish an expectation, you should meet it or else have a good reason for frustrating it. Does that, does that make sense as a, uh, you know, uh, does that make sense just as a starting off point for, for, yeah, I think that's just, that makes sense yeah. in terms of telling stories to people. Definitely. Okay. Right. So yeah. in the pilot, Every episode, every song was justified. They were auditioning for musical theater, so they were singing. You know what I mean? And yeah, you know, they were produced and they were lip syncing to tracks that had been already recorded. It didn't sound like actual musical theater auditions in a big, you know, uh, in a big airy room, you know, with a folding table at the end where it's echoey and boomy and sort of unattractive sounding. Let's come back to that uh, when we get a chance, rather, but it continue. Was sort of, it was sort of. Um, uh, yeah, because I, I actually want to talk about the production of the music a, a little bit. But, it, you know, they're close mic'd and they're very, you know, uh, very fully, fully produced, um, you know, and like strings come in, you know, which never happens when I audition. You know what I mean? The, <laughs> a, 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 a string session doesn't. Does the producer put on like a fake face and kind of lie to you afterwards? Like, no, no, I totally heard strings. It yeah, was exactly. Great. I, yeah, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I'm just terrible. Yeah, you- maybe I'm you, you, were, you were the best audition I ever had. Next audition. <laughs> the strings, yeah, darling, the strings failed to play. I'm sorry. Uh, but, uh, no, it's... Um, but at least, you know, e- even if it was being made more a more attractive version of reality, at least there was a reason. But in the final sequence of the thing, when the, when the two actresses go to, like, their callback, you know, uh, against one another, and um, they they like are getting ready for the big audition in the morning um you know uh uh what's her name um Catherine McPhee is in the shower like washing her hair and music comes in underneath and she starts like singing about washing her hair and like how she's getting ready for for the audition <laughs> and it's it's just a, it's a violation of the it's like that's the glee universe you know what i yeah. mean that's not the um that's not the the universe that they were setting up. Now, fortunately, um, with the exception of this this uh, Nick Jonas uh, thing that happened, where right uh, where oh you know we, there's an investor at this party. Quick, let's do a number so that they give us money and. Uh, <laughs> Which is like the little rascals. That's like from the 30s. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> exactly. And then it's a backers. Suddenly, everyone, quick, it's a backers audition. Um, you know, and suddenly. Like Mickey, like it's the, someone, Mickey Rooney. Is that Mickey Rooney with, with uh, Julie Garland? Judy Garland who would do that? Yeah, or, yeah right. Yeah, exactly. Not Andy Rooney. I get confused. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, Pete, you're, you're, you're joking, but I made that, that very same mistake in conversation with someone, uh, you know, not two weeks past. Um, but so, okay. That, like, that, really, that really gets my goat. And I'm going to start a show about it. <laughs> you know, you know what I hate is my blatantly racist portrayal of Asian people in Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> Anybody, <laughs> Anybody make you any reference? All right, I'm going back uh, into silence. Um, the uh, right, so that the lounge band that you know got hired to be the like light jazz background at this uh, at this cocktail party was mm-hmm. press ganged into, um, you know, was sort of dragooned into. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, being the the backing band for the singers doing a number for the show in front of the you know in front of the big producer, and they just you know magically knew the they just magically knew the tune by magic, and they magically knew you know the the horn yeah. section like magically knew suddenly like the the one saxophone guy sounded like a horn section you know, and he he magically knew the parts and the My, uh, but to your point, Matt, is that, to your point, yeah, Matt, we are totally okay with that because those rules have been established. That you see a certain number of instruments in the room and right. they're playing, but you know the show is going to augment that. There are at least, yeah, bigger. there are That's there okay. are at least ins- there are at least instruments there. You know what I mean? And yeah, it's a slightly what it's a slightly tarted up kind of fantasy version of of what it could be, but it could be a real thing. And in that in that pilot, that last. Um, uh, in that pilot, that last number just was not, and I think I, right because they, they they sing on the street, they sing you know like ha- she's hailing a cab and she's singing while she's doing that. Um, fortunately, though, the the musical numbers themselves are knocked down amazing. They're pretty good, yeah, right. 
Uh, uh, mainly so, tuneful, you, well-written, just uh, top-notch music, period. Well, I think, and, and uh, the, the guy, Mark Shaman, Shaman um, who, who, was, who was one of the guys on the Hairspray team, who also did, uh, you know, who also did, um, uh, uh, oh, he also collaborated with Trey Parker and Matt Stone on the South Park movie music. Oh. Numbers, which, which, for my money, is like the, the best musical of... The 90s. You know what I mean? Oh, hands down. Uh, you know, it's it's up there with the Blues Brothers for, you know, best musical ever put on film. In it my gets, uh, yeah, right. Like, uh, it totally kicks the ass of Rent, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so should we go back and loop back to what we what we uh, were talking about earlier about yeah. the sort of augmentation of the sound? Right. And- yeah. Yeah. Can we can we talk about that? Like yeah. I, the thing and here, let me let me postulate something and, and you tell me if you think I'm I'm full of crap or not. Um, You're full of crap. But to continue. <laughs> well, yeah, no, but I mean about this particular. Yeah. Oh, 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 OK. okay. <laughs> um, the the uh, the music in Smash, I think, is a lot less produced or at least the production is a lot less obtrusive than than the music in Glee, where it's like the, the use of pitch correction, um, the, the use of things like compress, you know, like heavily compressed. And I actually I noticed it with Nick Jonas in the last episode, because when he was singing, he was pitch corrected. It was very heavily compressed. Um, you know, there wasn't the kind of just natural ebb and flow of pitch that happens in, in a good singer, because like, people think of yeah. on pitch or on off pitch. It's not quite that simple. There's a continuum. And to be just a little bit wrong is often very is often very artful. Frank Sinatra, right, right. Frank Sinatra, for example, was always slightly under pitch, and it sounds so damn cool. It sounds very jazzy when yeah. Sinatra does it. But well, um, it, it's, it's also like a major stylistic technique for the whole of country uh, country music, right? Yeah, right. So yeah, so, so the idea, and you never hear that. You never hear that on Glee. It's like they're singing through a machine, uh, which in fact they are doing. You know? Yeah. So I almost completely agree with you on that. And so this is based on the few episodes of Glee that I saw at the beginning of uh, its first season um, before I got tired of it because it was a crap show, which you eventually came to realize as well. Am I well, right? I, I, you see, I think it became a crap <laughs> show. I don't think it was a crap show in that first episode. You know, actually... She the was, first that pilot was great, and then after that it went... As, as we were planning this episode on the internal mailing list for Overthinking It writers, uh, Sheely had a sidebar with me, and we were talking about Smash versus Glee, and he said, is it good or is it bad? Uh, is it bad uh, in the same way as Glee, or is it bad in a different way from Glee? And my answer was it's bad in a different way from Glee. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Because Glee, Glee um, just forsook all the – is it right? Glee, Glee hath forsaken uh, all that was originally enjoyable about yeah, Glee yeah, yeah. and turned it into a, a, maudlin, uh, a maudlin soap opera. Uh, but we, we got to talk about soap opera and smash also. But uh, sorry, Mark. I didn't mean to digress. <laughs> Okay, so yes, overall those, the sound is less sort of auto-tuned and very heavily produced um, than Glee in, in Smash. That being said, um, there is a bit of a weird dissonance that I get in terms of how uh, produced and augmented the sound is from number to number. Um, even within one of some of the audition scenes, you hear the piano tinkling and it sounds very much like it's in a room. You have that presence of, of, of a large room. Um, but then the voice kicks in and it, that sounds very close mic'd. Yeah, and the voice and is close mic'd and it's really – yeah, exactly. It's very dissonant to me. And then uh, you go to another scene where, um, where they're recording a demo track. And, you know, that's in a – granted, you know, that's not in a big audition room where you can expect a lot of reverb. But for whatever reason – and this is – I'm referring to scenes in the pilot here. Um, for whatever reason, the one that was more intimate in the demo setting uh, sounded much more natural and like, okay, I can – uh, I can believe that this is just whatever the sounds that they are are making here, and with the same instrumentation, piano and voice. Did you get that same impression, Matt? Yeah, I, and there's no, other other instances as well. You can point to even the uh, when the, the karaoke scene, when they actually go to a karaoke bar. Right, uh, it sounds ex- pristine. There's none of that, you know, just like the crappy reverb on the microphone and the sense that you know it's 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 playing in a PA in a bar. Yeah, it, it definitely definitely the. Uh... There's a kind of there's kind of an inconsistency in it. I mean, I I accept that because like anyone who's produced video uh, knows people will watch crappy video. They won't listen to crappy audio, you know, and it kind of it kind of has to be 
um, I mean, <laughs> with the exception of our podcast, Zing, uh, it kind of has to be very pristine, right? Yeah. Um, can so, we uh, that, that, okay, so, <laughs> so to wrap that up, to wrap that up, though, it bothers me a little bit. I pick it up in here and there, maybe because um, maybe a little more hypersensitive to these sorts of things because, you know, I'm a musician and I'm involved in the production of a pristine audio product like this one. Um, but it's not, it's not a deal breaker though. It's not something that really bothers me. Um, well, the, and if you go to broad, I mean, if you go to Broadway shows, which I do when I'm in New York, I mean, you, y'all, well, you Mark probably go more than I do because you, uh, live there. But, um, when you go to Broadway shows, I think more and more, you know, people are wearing, people are wearing mics where that used to be, uh, not necessarily. I mean, I mean, part of the the training of a Broadway performer was to sort of fill those large uh, theaters with voice with without needing sound reinforcement. But the the now you know everyone wears the little over ear uh, microphone, and so the sound actually in Broadway is a lot more close mic'd um, right than it than it used to be. Um, I, I mean, I can't comment on the used to be part. And, there, and there's a, bla- you know, and there's a bank of processors off stage or or whatnot that is kind of sweetening the vocals, uh, and and in some cases like au- augmenting the live orchestra with recorded instruments as well. Yeah, I mean, if it weren't for unions, that would be a lot more so. I think I think they keep pushing to try to do more and more of that stuff because they see it as more you know value and cost conscious for themselves as producers. But the, right, the unions do fight back. That's, it's funny, like live live theater is an area where like economic efficiency. I mean, even absent the question of unions, it still takes as many people to do a Shakespeare play as it ever did, and it takes them just as long. You know what that's I mean? Just, that's, just, that's just false. I mean, I, I, people will do <laughs> a Shakespeare play with, like, 20 characters with, like, <laughs> four actors, you know? Yeah, but that was always the case, and that's, that's a um, matter of... Oh, that's... That, it's right. You're right. You're right. It's that they never actually Shakespeare had actors play like three or four different roles over yeah, the course of the show. Right. That's the difference. I, I think yeah. Matt's talking about like Pete, like your own production of One Gentleman of Verona. <laughs> Look, Anybody? you're not. That is under my pseudonym, <laughs> <laughs> Mark Ryland. NC17 and for mature audiences only. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was one. It was One Gentleman and Ramona. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The comedy of error was uh, <laughs> <laughs> the merry wife of Windsor. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Much ado about one thing. Yeah, <laughs> no, we got a million of them, people. Yeah, I mean, you're right that the Shakespeare plays because Shakespeare was also very cost conscious because well, right, the yeah, money. Yeah, exactly. yeah, well, he had a company of actors and they and they doubled all the time. But yeah, when you observe the doublings, even observing the doublings, it takes the same you know minimum of fourteen people to do Hamlet as as it ever did, and uh, right. you know, and I guess if you do Hamlet with four people, which I'm sure has been done, I saw Othello done with four people once, um, and it was pretty wow. good actually. Uh, but that was an artistic decision, you know what I mean? It was stripped down to the point where it was really a different show. It was really a work that was based on, uh, it was based on the other work, you know. And maybe yeah, but yeah, maybe orchestras also, you know. And it still takes, you know, I don't know, a hundred people to play that, uh, you know, to play that Mahler symphony, well, right? Like, <laughs> well, yeah, but remember, remember when we were in college. Remember when we were in college and the, the uh, theater department for undergraduates, I don't know if, if you were involved or heard this decision, the theater department for undergraduates issued a statement saying that the undergraduate theater uh, department and also the general undergraduate theater community wanted to formally endorse an aesthetic of minimalism. Right. The idea, like, like this, this was a statement from professors saying that it would be good for the theater study that was happening in this theater to espouse a, a value that required them not to buy or fund any costumes or, or sets for <laughs> right. any shows. And, and so it's, it's very easy to turn any, well, it's not very easy. It's, that's, that's, a, that's a lie. It's, it's, it's difficult, but it's possible to turn economic decisions into artistic decisions or to justify them or to, to bring them into alignment. I mean, I, I, I think working in, you know, in small independent comedy theaters, you have to do that. And any sort of small, any sort of theater really is generally going to be small. Even a large theater is a small business. Um, but, uh, I mean, medium-sized, maybe like a few of them. So let's uh, let's bring this back to Smash here. We're talking about artistic decisions and economic decisions, right? Yeah. NBC is struggling. Network um, has 
you know, invested a ton of money right into a very expensive show that involves original uh, original music and, you know, big production numbers and, and dancing. Oh God, and things and that, like that. That's got to be so hard to do. Right. Like it's kind of like with Glee, like you have to go into the studio and record all of them. They have to be written beforehand. Yeah. Uh, then you have to chore- choreograph them. You have to practice the choreography. You have to shoot the choreography. You have to shoot it from a bunch of different angles. It's very, very technically difficult to shoot dance. Yep. And there is real dance uh, in Smash, which I appreciate. Uh, it's not just, it's not like Moulin Rouge style dance where the, the, the quick pace of the editing takes the place of the actual movement of bodies in space. Uh, you know, but like, and they, they chose to make this huge bet uh, on a, uh, a premise that seems to have a very limited appeal, which is like Broadway, Broadway theater, which seems to be kind of a, a what a, a niche pastime. Right? Yeah, it's on the verge of not being popular culture. In, in that, like, not like like the numbers aren't there. Like, you know, the people who yeah, can travel. I, mean, I realize it's the most yeah, commercially yeah. successful uh, live theater in just in terms of making a lot of money. Uh, as you know. As far that, that's what I mean by commercially successful. Is that is that is that true? Is that yeah, true? I mean, well, it's true for it's true for the actors. That is to say, more money is generated right. for actors' sure, equity sure. the union via Broadway than via the whole uh, <laughs> the whole rest of professional theater activity in the country. Yeah, but but like, does Broadway uh, as an industry make more money each year than say arena football or professional wrestling or stand up comedy? Sure. Um, or uh, I, I meant to I meant to to uh, restrict my comment to live live theater performance, which there's right, a lot, right. which uh-huh. there's a lot more of than than you think. But uh, most of it is is making zero money, and a lot of it is uh, and and then most of the rest of it is making very very little money. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. So it's it's you know in this world it's this pinnacle of financial success, and yet to me when you actually like consider Broadway theater as performance uh, in light of, you know, the tradition, the American tradition of realism that, you know, that is in all of our movies and is, is kind of, and kind of the sense that, that our dramatic entertainment should be naturalistic. Broadway well, and, is, and, and, and was also a major theme in our Broadway production in, in days gone by. Right. Sorry, Matt, I didn't want to cut you off. There, no, but... so I'm trying to parse. I'm trying to parse what you said. Can you unpack that a little bit? Oh, sorry, sorry. The uh, well, I, you, I, I cut you off before you got to your point, right? You're saying that that the sort of grandiose, that the bizarre kind of language that Broadway um, expresses, you know, its artistic messages in, yes, uh, that appeals to this very small sort of small market. But but the particular language that they're using is so far removed from anything that resembles realism is, that 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 it could as well it's, be. It's, it could as well be avant-garde performance art. Yeah, yeah, it, it could be kabuki, right? Right. It, it, That's yeah. exactly it. Oh, it could be. It could be kabuki. <laughs> <laughs> you never know when something could or could not be kabuki. Uh, no one ever expects kabuki. Uh, but but yeah. But the thing is, uh, and, and yeah, and not only is this uh, broadly in contrast with the more widely popular artistic forms that that Americans view and are part of, you know, American film and so forth. Well, like tele, but, like television, for example, or, or television, yeah, yeah. But but even looking back, like the great American dramas, you know, Death of a Salesman. This was not, uh, you know, this is not a grandiose. This is not a retelling of La Bohème. Yeah. Oh, right, exactly. All a bunch the... of like art rocking, uh, you know, East Village residents, yeah. right? This is meant to be a slice of a very dramatic, realistic moment, All a very the... sad. Moment. In a typical family's life, all right? the Arthur Miller stuff, even the O'Neill stuff, and O'Neill pushed it towards the operatic, but like, you know, all that stuff, it's in the it's in the like the checkoff mode of like, huh? Yeah, here are these here are these characters just kind of sitting around, and you know, some stuff happens to them, they have some hangups and 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 stuff like that, and that's the you know through through movies and through television, that's the like the the what dominant form of dramatic art in in america and broadway i mean broadway it seems to me when you really consider what is going on though though honestly for me one of my favorite things is 
to take things that are supposedly naturalistic and kind of reveal the constructedness of them and how that sense of naturalism is constructed because it's not actually more true. It's just a style that that makes you believe uh, that it's more true. But right. Broadway is a style that makes you believe it's not, it is not true, but instead fabulous. And uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you know what I mean? And so, it, sorry, Mark, re- re- circling back now to your point, this is an odd thing to, to bet the farm on for NBC, right? Well, actually, you know, the thing is, I think that uh, putting, and again, I, I'm one of the 50% of this, pro- of this podcast that hasn't actually seen the show, but I can see that uh, you know, without the actual details of the dramatic context of the show, that that as an executive at a at a at a TV company, you might actually see how this is quite similar to a lot of the other things that you already have up in your network, right? And that, namely, uh, like crime procedurals. Like this is a process that most people hopefully don't have to go through in their lives on one side or the other, and professionally are probably not involved in. You know, crime lab techs occupy a very very small percentage of the human populace but people are still going to get interested in watching the process of how this plays out uh in part because the story itself is kind of saucy you know oh, this guy was you know murdered while wearing nothing but a gorilla mask and you know in the back alley of some like you know fish processing company you've been reading but, my diary <laughs> indeed i have um with copious references to Kabuki. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, it, it's also the actual process itself. People people are enamored by watching uh, the way something that's alien to them has been logically allotted out and the way it develops from its inchoate state to, to its final product. And, and I feel like, you know, almost all of the shows that you kind of named at the top, um, you know, Community and, and Smash and 30 Rock, you know, they have that extra draw of, of talking about a process that is in some ways familiar to people, uh, you know, the, the production of a television show or, or just being a TV show. But, you know, probably not that much more familiar than like the concept of law enforcement, right? So and I, am I the only one who sees that this can all fall into sort of like the same meta genre? I well, sort of. I mean, like, but the, but then they also there's a kind of distortion that that happens in in all cases because I think a show that actually detailed the process of law enforcement would be like eighty percent people doing paperwork. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like <laughs> sit, sitting at desks, filling out, you know. Uh, filling out forms and, you know, 20% yeah, yeah. kicking down doors the, and being... This is but, being but at the same time, <laughs> a sh- I mean, a show about a Broadway musical would involve you sitting around for a long time. I mean, I guess they don't call you if they don't need you anymore, right? Like, you don't just sit backstage. Like a high school musical where you sit backstage for, like, four hours and you're, like, doing your geometry homework, waiting for that time when you get to walk on stage and be like, a chair, a chair, and then leave. You know, like... <laughs> Pete, Pete, you've been reading my diary. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, Chuck, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit in comparing the, you know, right. these meta-entertainment shows to crime procedurals. I mean, your, your points are, are valid. I will give you that, Schechner. But um, what, what... Give him no such thing. <laughs> what, um, Mark, what... you, can, you can only proceed if the next thing you say starts with it. But I submit that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's not what it's going to be. So yes. shows, like, shows like 30 Rock and Smash lack... Uh, one of the major appeals, uh, major appeals of crime procedurals, which is violence, which is also like like uh, appealing to or preying on our fear of crime and violence in our dangerous and dirty world. Um, and uh, and that- I think, and I as I, I have always maintained also uh, a desire to vicariously experience the commission of crime. Yeah, 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 yeah sure, sure. Uh, but uh, okay, yeah, no, I'll give you that. that. That's that's certainly a valid point. Ha! I mean, can you not see this as sublimation? You know, uh, we do still have these um, these violent tendencies, but this show is going to transmogrify those into the sort of more sexual uh, um, you know yearnings that we have. Like at the same time, most of us have wanted to shut up a celebrity. Yeah, but that, uh, that's, I mean, it's, it's very funny. Freud is rolling in his grave hearing us discuss uh, sex as a sublimation of violence and not the other way, not the other way around. Right, right. But, um, <laughs> like, you, you actually... Well, I, you know, you, I, I do it because I don't trust Austrians, so screw him. Um, you, uh, like, like, Dave, you actually have a violence drive, but you can't act out your violence drive, so you go impregnate, right. you go impregnate your wife? Well, it, it was... <laughs> to be fair, she's pretty violent. 
Right. She she's she's got a razor blade on her person at all times. So you know, it's <laughs> six of one, half a dozen of the other. Um, um, so yeah, I mean, but Mark, isn't the isn't the idea of like the the kind of theme song of the show is this this thing that was written? It's uh, a song that's written called "Let Me Be Your Star." That's written from right. the, the point of view of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, you know, wanting to be famous and. Um, because I, I guess the show contends that that is one of the things that she really wanted to be, one of the things she really asked for uh, in the sort of be careful what you wish for department. And the, the, uh, the, the sort of drive to be famous is – it seems to be like more than ever a component of, of our society, what with all the, the reality shows and the whatnot and the idea that – you know, the idea that, yeah, like, yeah. how many, you know, I don't know, how many times have you said, uh, not maybe not you, how many times have you heard said or had reported to you that it was said, um, or been been privy to the reporting uh, of it to someone else that it was said, like, oh, there should be a show about me. I should have my own reality show. You know? We, <laughs> oh, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely with you in there. You know, and like, you know, like people casually saying that, oh, this will make me internet famous, right? Um, what we're talking about whereas, here is whereas desire. we at overthinking it have proved that uh, we had overthinking it have proved that that internet fame is is <laughs> hard to come by and fleeting when when you get it for a second mm-hmm. indeed but okay so this uh, you know em- the, the way that that song and the show emulate uh, or broader society's desire for fame is different than what's going on in the crime procedurals, right? Which is not this, you know, like that desire for fame is more overt and on the surface, whereas what we talked about, that desire to commit the crime is uh, not so much on the surface. That's, you know, uh, you know uh, some layer beneath, right? And, and, like the, and then, like, there's an, the other thing about this, like, fear of crime and fear of violence, but in some way also really liking it, right? Again, like, also sort of beneath the surface in a way that the desire for fame is not... Sure. Um, and you know what? It's, it's actually like dancing in musicals and violence, ha- insofar as they are filmed, um, like have a lot in common because they involve kind of – they involve exuberant motion. They uh, – you know what I mean? Across the frame, they involve like kind of strenuous activity. They involve like this focus on the body and a focus on uh, sort of a physical um, – competence or physical dominance or physical uh uh effort right like uh i you could strain it would be very easy to strain the comparison uh by pushing it too far but but the two things the fact that that they get um uh the, the fact that they both do well on film i think is not accidental right that's a good point but uh dancing uh lacks the same sort of liquid release of violence which is say like gushing blood um, you know, the sweat dripping is not oh, quite as great have, as gushing you have, blood. You have not seen Step Up 3D, if you say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is also why people watch kung fu movies, right? Because yeah. they're basically dance. I mean, the way that I see it tends to be a little bit different in that, like, you have elements that you want to show in your show, right? Like, you have spectacle, and you have music, and you, and you have, like, kinetic energy, and you have sexuality, and, and these things want to be, you want to have them in your show, and anything that your show is going to be about has to have those things in it, and anything that can have those things in it can be the subject of your show. I don't necessarily know that, that uh, or think that you would go about deciding to do a show because, I guess maybe in the criticism and the viewing of it, the, the sort of underlying trends and motivations for wanting to watch a particular thing become important, and like, why does one thing become popular versus another thing, but sitting down to actually make the show, and I guess maybe you want to, like, why am I doing this project in the first place, but the thing that I would think, I mean, you could make a show about anything, um, provided that it had those elements, and I guess what it does, that's the big argument, I guess, for some people, is that you can, it sometimes makes, gives people the unrealistic expectation that those things have those elements by nature, when in fact you, the show does, you know, you could do a show about somebody who goes into trees and takes down, like, snagged power lines. Like, that could be the show, right? And they could see sexy people, and then they could, like, have soap opera stuff happen, and there'd be cliffhangers, and they'd sing to themselves while they were in the tree. It's like cop rock. Like, you can do cop rock, <laughs> right? Like, it, it's possible. It's not like the... the nest, like, There's no law against <laughs> it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, isn't, there, isn't that called Botchko's Law? Yeah, Botchko's Law, which is Botchko's you, you can't like, do cop rock. cop rock from happening again. 
<laughs> I don't know. You know, we people talk. I want to see Cop Rock. I shouldn't see Cop Rock. I'll be. I'll discover what it is. But uh, but um, but at any rate, the point is that like you could do a musical about police officers. Like the subject matter doesn't dictate what the show has to be about. Uh, and this is part of why shows aren't realistic, really, and why naturalism and realism are also styles, right? Like um, because there's so much that is present in every moment that you can't possibly create a show that fully encompasses the moment of reality. Right. Um, I so overthink. You... I blog it for you, Fendel. Yeah. <laughs> He's overthinking, overthinking. Matt Rather's overthinking. His... Sorry, I'm doing a lot of jazz oh, hands. Matt Rather, that old Matt Rather. I thought that was he just <laughs> keeps talking. Oh yeah, <laughs> but don't say nothing. He ju- no, I shouldn't say that's mean. He's gonna uh, play the drinking game tonight. <laughs> He'll mention Fencil's name tonight. I mean, but <laughs> so, but the essential difference between a reality show or like a meta show about an artistic endeavor and a meta show about a practical endeavor is that you can take while you're showing the show of the artistic endeavor, you can do. The artistic endeavor, whereas like I guess America's Most Wanted is the equivalent, right? Like America's Most Wanted is like Glee, but sure, it's a, po- it's a <laughs> <laughs> finally someone who agrees right, with me. A, right, America's Most Wanted is a police action, right? Taking yeah. play, you know what I mean? Not not really a police action because it's a, it's like a mob justice type of police action. <laughs> But it's right. a, it's a uh, it's a police action taking place in the form of a television show, whereas right. uh, Law and Order is a television show taking place in the form of a police action. Right. <laughs> right. I was, you know, what I was thinking last last time uh, we, I think, or I think I compared the Oscars to uh, the Oscars are not a um, television show about movies. It's a television show of a stage show about movies, right? Right. And, right. and Smash yeah. is the same way that it's it's a television show about a stage show about a movie star, right? Like it, it's right. It, so uh, you know, I don't know. Smash is the Oscars at uh, in a way I, on some level of abstraction. <laughs> It, it would be funny to do a television show about a, a, a movie about a Broadway star, and the, and the movie would be fairly mundane. It would be like an art house picture, right? It would be like, oh, I'm going to get Peapod, you know, like, okay, like, I got to pay my rent, you know, like, I don't think you know, that, I don't know. Man, I mean, there, there are movies about Broadway stars. The one I'm thinking of is yeah. uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy uh, with uh, right. uh, uh, oh, what's his name? You dirty rat, you kill my brother, uh, James Cagney. James Cagney right. playing uh, George M. Cohen, the Broadway impresario uh, and, and performer, uh, who there's a statue of, I think, in Father Duffy Square, right? Um, right. So, right, there is, a, yeah, there is that. So we can make a TV show about, about me sitting down to watch Yankee Doodle Dandy on Netflix Instant. And, um, you know, just the, 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 and it's about the web surfing that I do when I watch... Uh, <laughs> James so look, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a <laughs> I'm gonna make a viral. <laughs> this is not the least watchable idea we've had. As a group. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna get, couldn't I make a, a YouTube series called Minutes with Foster, which is gonna be or Minutes with Sutton, and it's gonna be Matt Rather uh, watching television on a YouTube video, but pretending to be Sutton Foster watching television. So you're gonna be wearing like a little uh, sailor suit. That's like the star of the current remake of Anything Goes, right? Like yeah, and days uh, yeah. a glimpse. <laughs> Stalking was, and you can tell the aside, was, I, I saw that on Broadway, and it is spectacular. It's to die for, but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, anyway, I mean, I mean, here's here's a question. Here's, here's a question about Smash, and a question about Glee, and a question about these things. So, one of the from when you look at the viewing viewership of Broadway musicals, one of the things that jumps off big time is that Broadway musicals have a gender problem. Women watch Broadway musicals, gay dudes watch Broadway musicals, straight dudes overwhelmingly do not watch Broadway musicals. This is at least in part because the artistic and theater communities have become a home for uh, subaltern populations. 
in America where they can do work and establish a sort of voice, right? Like there is definitely like a, a culture that is not in favor of certain kinds of gender norms. I mean, yes, it is still present in Broadway and there are still like man, men who are dominating various fields and whatnot. I don't want to say that doesn't exist, but Broadway has sort of thrown away the idea of like male hegemony in a lot of ways, uh, like at least on its face. And in that res- in response to that, men don't watch the show, right? Um, so the question is, does a rise in things like Glee and Smash, which both, I would say, and I would say that like high school drama club through Broadway is, exists within a certain cultural loop, that there's a vocabulary that spans both these things. Um, does the rise of these sorts of things on television signify that television is now more comfortable with the kinds of gender politics that have been the reality on Broadway for decades? And, and that the economics of televisions have changed so much that you, that you can be comfortable putting on that kind of show and not really worry about the fact that no, no like, you know, that like, that, or even like that straight dudes have changed enough that they'll watch it. I can actually see that that being a real thing, that even if they haven't become comfortable with it, they're willing to explore it a bit to see whether or not it's going to be marketable and profitable for them. And, and I say this because of the sort of proliferation they're, they're of, show, they're show, uh, of like They're show curious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's precisely what they are. Well, in the way that they were nerd curious uh, and sci-fi geek curious for years, right? Like, you know... 10, 15 years ago, you would not have as many, like, paranormal, vampire-based shows as, um, as you have now. Um, you know, Chuck would have never been greenlit in the mid-90s. And, you know, say what you will about how the show right. played yeah, out. Yeah, because like, in the mid-90s, you know, we had, like, uh, one ill-fated season of Richard Grieco in If Looks Could Kill, you know, right? Oh, no, that was the movie. What was the TV show he did? I forget. But anyway. <laughs> you, well, and look, you, of all humans, you were the one who was closest to remembering. So Okay, so to explain what's going on, you know, Pete's assertion that... Um, you know that these things are having are having broader appeal. You know, and, and that you know the networks are comfortable with uh, reaching out to that bro- this thing with broader appeal. That that sounds okay, but let's step up, uh, go a step backwards with that, and let's use a sci-fi example for that, which is that you know this subaltern uh, subculture, you know, sort of a niche thing. Um, you know, thanks to things like the internet. Well, really, thanks to the internet, um, that subaltern culture, like you know, in sci-fi or you know, a musical theater and things like that, right? You know, they have found new homes and new strength in communities that they've been able to build, which previously were not able to build. Communities and around the television show Community, which is the geekiest show of all. I mean, you could say the same thing about Juggalos, right? And I mean, we could. Yes, this, yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> these are all characteristics of our contemporary information economy, right? Where things are fragmented, and you have tailored audiences and and stuff like that. Juggalo, um, Juggalo is a rule in the drinking game, isn't it? You got to drink now that oh. the word Juggalo. Has been said. <laughs> so, so should they <laughs> should, should they have drunk at the mention of Kabuki too? Sort of the Juggalos of feudal Japan. By the way, we need to write the Insane Clown Posse Broadway musical because all the juggalos from all over the country will come see it and we'll make millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> Actually, and it, it's, been mean, a long, it's been a long time since uh, you know, parts of Manhattan have been just overrun by people who haven't showered in three months. Given the emphasis on, on you know, face makeup and a kind, of, like, uh, a kind of extreme physicality, I think that yeah. Insane Clown Posse has more in common with kabuki theater than we might at first think yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's exactly what i was saying or we can we can also put it in vegas where singer CeeLo green has uh recently announced <laughs> <the residency. laughs> which by the way was like that was like the third or fourth or fifth string podcast topic that we decided not to talk about <laughs> Aren't was, you glad? Yes, that, that a guy from Goody Mob, the guy who's one of the guys who sang Soul Food, is now doing a Vegas showgirl show. <laughs> anyway, well, yeah, uh, yeah, we we did this podcast instead. So, what do you think? Was it a smash? Uh, you can email us at podcast. Uh, 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 <laughs> you got to throw a lot of darts, people. You, you make it. You yeah, got to write a lot uh, of jokes before. Yeah. Really... Swing at every pitch. Let's do this. <laughs> Uh, we, are, we are the we are the T ball of podcasts. Um, the uh, yeah. So um, 
uh, email podcast at everythingit.com or call 203-285-6401. That's call or text 203-285-6401 or join the conversation uh, that always rages on on the show notes of these shows. We'll be back with another episode of the Overthinking and Podcast next week as we have every week these past three years and change. We're coming up on the uh, the 200th episode. I was seriously considering... Um, I was seriously considering someone's suggestion. Uh, I think it was Cat uh, on commenter Cat who said we should do a musical episode ourselves for the two yeah. hundredth episode yeah. because uh, it's either that or an all Harvey. Oh God, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have even said his name. <laughs> but yeah, you have to say you have to say his name three times before three, three, you three, and stare into a mirror. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's uh, like, you yeah, know, like it's, Bloody Mary someone, or someone, someone tweeted us uh, as well, suggesting that we do an all doppelganger or evil. <laughs> win episode and i think oh, that would be amazing that would be pretty that would be pretty funny but i was thinking of of that we could write and produce the the musical episode especially since i'll have graduated from graduate school by then and have no uh job prospects so i'll be sitting at home a lot uh <laughs> surfing the uh surfing the unemployment website the state of california's unemployment website um so you know still we're still taking uh suggestions for uh jobs for me or for what we should do for the 200th episode so you can leave those uh we'll be back with 193 next week and until then you can find all manner of overthinking uh on the web at www.overthinking.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it Overthinking We're overthinking <laughs> Alright, do you really think the South Park musical is better than like Ragtime and like Miss Saigon I guess Miss Saigon is probably better than Miss Saigon Yeah <laughs> Uh, I, don't, I actually I haven't seen Ragtime, but but the South Park musical is just of so much higher quality than a, a lot. Of, I mean, it, it's politically very astute. It's incredibly self-aware. The the mm. lyrics are clever. The characterizations are like it's a, it's a it's a strangely prescient movie. If you just like you know replaced Bill Clinton in the White House with George Bush, it's like eerily uh, a sagacic on like the whole theater of convincing the country to go to war and the events that actually played out, you know, after the turn of the century. I, I think the South Park movie is amazing on multiple levels. I just still like the secret garden. Someone cares about it and comes to work each day like you and, like me. You and me. Will it grow? It will. Then have no doubt about it. Thank you, thank you. Have the next auditioner come in. Uh, next time, you don't have to play the violin. Harvey Firestein here. I'm taking over for Mandy Patinkin in everything, in everything he's ever done. Move on, move on. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. No, boss.